Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Please be seated. Good morning. Great to be with you today, this Palm Sunday, and uh, we're looking in our series in Romans chapter 8, so keep the Bible open in front of you. You'll find it also in your worship folder, and uh, that will be very helpful uh, as uh, you seek to understand what uh, this part of Scripture is saying. Now, if you are new to the Christian faith, you may not be aware that these two verses that we're looking at this morning have been um, the... um, the cause or the place for a kind of war of words, well, really ever since or at least soon after they were first written. I'm not going to get into all of that this morning, but just to indicate what I'm saying, you have Augustine and Pelagius, and then you have Calvin and uh, Arminius, and then you have Whitfield and Wesley, and the same sort of debate Uh, still carries on today. I won't mention uh, particular names uh, of people who are alive right now. Now, I very much doubt that uh, we will be able to answer these questions that people have at an intellectual level to everyone's uh, satisfaction. Though if we were to do that, the first thing to notice would be that verses 29 and 30 are in the context of... um, a section that goes from verse 18 to verse 30. So if I may very briefly recapitulate, we are looking at how Paul is giving assurance to the followers of Jesus that despite the sometimes very real challenges of life, we can have confidence that God is in charge and indeed is bringing us to glory. So verse 18 starts with glory, the glory that is to be revealed. And then at the end, in verse 30, to close this section of Romans, Paul ends with the most daring tense of a verb ever used in the English, uh, in human language, glorified. Paul is saying that from God's perspective, obviously not from our perspective, for we are often very much less than glorified, but from God's perspective, the future destiny of the Christian is so certain and definite that he may write about it as if it has already taken place. We are glorified. Um, It's the past tense, or if you want to be precise, the aorist, which is used for that which is done and finished. 
So whatever your precise theory about verses 20 and 39 may be, uh, we all need to understand them in such a way that they lead to the sort of confidence uh, that uh, you could write about the future state of a Christian as, from God's point of view, so certain and sure that it may be said to be glorified. Now, of course, there are some people who would just immediately say that is, uh, you know, really presumptuous. I mean, perhaps you've heard that objection. How on earth can a Christian claim to be sure that they are going to heaven? How outrageous. Who do you think you are? But what Paul is writing about is not from our point of view and how good we are, but from God's point of view and how reliable he is. And so the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, so-called, is really the doctrine of God persevering with his people. Which, when you read the Old Testament, as those of us who have been following the daily Bible readings uh, we are doing as a church uh, this, this week, will realize sometimes requires a great deal of patience on the part of God. Now, what I'm going to do today uh, is uh, then very simply explain briefly each of these key five words in these verses. Uh, for new, predestined, called, justified, glorified. I've already explained the last, so some of them I'll explain very quickly, as they're pretty obvious, and others will require just a little bit more digging to understand. I also want to say that as we now go through this part of God's Word, there are dangers at either extreme. There is what is called hyper-Calvinism, as well as what is called Pelagianism. Now, these are big words, but one simple way of understanding one danger is what a brother pastor Christian leader from the Ukraine who was with us last week said to me after church. He thanked me for making God's word clear, for which I was grateful, as that is all I'm trying to do. I have no wisdom. I just want us to hear this wisdom, this book. And he said that the Christian leaders in Ukraine are praying for the church in America that we would stop thinking it's all up to God and realize that we have to do something about it ourselves. Very interesting prayer from our brothers in the Ukraine. There is, you see, a certain passivity that can enter in when you emphasize one extreme. And at the other extreme, there is a kind of anxious uncertainty. Is it really going to all turn out all right in the end? And in the middle somewhere, there is confidence. And that's, of course, where we are aiming. Now, these five words. The first is for no. You can find it in verse 29. And it is the battleground for much argument between those who want to emphasize human agency against those who want to emphasize divine sovereignty. But actually, there is a place in these verses where human agency is emphasized. We'll see that in a moment. But it is not here with this word. 
When the Bible says that God knows us, what it means is not that he has intellectual information about us. I mean, after all, God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. So it would be redundant, tautologous, to simply say that he knows us in that sense of having information about us. What the Bible means when it says that God knows us is that he knows us like a husband knows a wife or a wife her husband. There is an intimate, loving, personal attachment to us. So, for instance, in Genesis 18, verse 19, no need to look it up, I'll just quote it for us. It says that God chose Abraham, but the word translated chose there is the Hebrew for know. God knew him, he chose him, he loves him. Or as God says to Israel in the prophet Amos, chapter 3, verse 2, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Well, obviously God knows in the sense of intellectual knowledge about everyone and everything. But God's chosen people are especially loved by God. And in that sense, he only knows them. I could carry on with cross-references, but I think the point is made. One final one that you might like to look up is in Romans itself, chapter 11, uh, verse uh, 2. And there, Paul, uh, there Paul says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, none of this what we might call loving choice of God's people gives them an excuse to sin or assuages them of their responsibility. No, no, no. Paul carries on in that same chapter 11 to say that Israel rebelled, was disciplined, and then he warns us that we must therefore continue in his kindness. And that quotation from Amos chapter 3 says, um, indeed, you only have I known among all the families of the earth, but then it continues, Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. So there's a delicate balance here, do you see? But the point of this for no word is not that God foresees how someone will behave and then elects them on that basis. The basis is God's foreknowledge, that is his choice, that is his love, his intimate knowledge. As Paul puts it in Ephesians, God chose us before the creation of the world. Or Jeremiah chapter 1, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. You say, well, what's the application of all that? Well, it seems to me the application of that is really all these words is amazement. Could it be that we are so loved? Paul wants to tell us that we are. It has left me speechless this week. Asking the questions that Paul asked that uh, we had uh, read out just now. What then shall we say? You know, sometimes we give too glib answers to complicated questions, don't we? 
And the best response is wonder. That's where this is going. This, it is extraordinary that we are so loved by God. Well, the next word is predestined. And uh, I uh, will not spend long on this word, for it is pretty obvious what it means if you look it up in a dictionary. Uh, foreordained, predetermined, predecided, I suppose. What is interesting is that it is clearly a key word here for Paul, for he steps back from his golden chain of connecting terms to explain this one. He says that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, here Paul is defining what it means to be glorified. He is saying that God's purpose, his predestining purpose, is that we would be like Jesus. What a marvelous thought. You know, that little chap in kindergarten, that middle school KM's student, that college student who is talented but thinks he's really the best thing since sliced bread, that rather crotchety old man who's just beginning to realize what following Jesus is truly all about. That cleric who lives for the approval of the crowd. God's purpose is quite simple and quite wonderful. His purpose is to make us like Jesus. I remember uh, one person telling me how they became a Christian. They were reading the Bible and they um, read about Jesus and Jesus just attracted them. Haven't you found that? I mean, I like Paul, uh, but of course, Paul had his personal failings. He's very frank about them. He had his weaknesses. God used them. But with Jesus, there is such a sweet strength, a loving power. He, he welcomes children. He rebukes Pharisees. And surely on this Palm Sunday weekend, we can see his attractiveness, perhaps above all as we go towards Good Friday and Easter Sunday. This is what will draw people to God, not us, not our programs, but Christ in us. One day we will have a resurrection body like his and be glorified like him and conformed to the image of the Son. It's, it's really quite mind-blowing stuff. And once again, I think the application is wonder, amazement. What then shall we say to these things? It's quite extraordinary. I've certainly felt it this week. I mean, don't you get frustrated with your failures and foibles? I certainly do with my own. But one day we will be like him. It just leaves you wondering in speechless amazement. 
Or at least that's where it leaves me, and I hope it will leave you like that today too. Then there is the word called. Very simply, by called here, Paul means the effectual calling. Uh, That is, not just someone saying, would you like to become a Christian? Uh, People sometimes accept that and sometimes reject it, I'm afraid. But this is the call of God on a person's life, the inward work of the Spirit, which is effective and results in someone following Jesus. Now, a little sidebar, I hope you notice the biblical balance that we are drawing out here, that we're sensing between what is often called God's sovereignty and human responsibility. See, in biblical thinking everywhere, God is completely sovereign and we are responsible as well. They are like parallel train tracks, God's sovereignty, human responsibility that run over the horizon of eternity and never, never cross. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That is an appeal to our responsibility to make a decision. Jesus says that. Joshua says, choose this day whom you will serve. Again, you know, we need to make a choice. It's our responsibility to believe in God and to serve God. But Jesus also says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. One of the classic places uh, for this is uh, Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph says to his brothers, you planned it for evil, but God planned it for good. The saving of many lives, both God's sovereignty and human responsibility, true. You say, well, that's just a mystery. It is. But not a trivial mystery. It's a mystery that resides in the very person of God. God as a trinity. Sovereign Father, saving Son, and empowering Spirit. You see, this is why Islam is so fatalistic. It doesn't believe in a triune trinitarian God. The old illustration is that when you come to Christ, you go through a door, and over the door it says, come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You go through that door. And then when you look back on the other side of the door, you notice it says, I have known you since before the creation of the world. So you will find, if you read through the New Testament, the Bible never preaches election or predestination in an evangelistic context. It never preaches it to non-Christians. It's always preached as an encouragement to Christians. For the Bible says, the secret things belong to God, but the revealed things to us. There is a mystery, but the revealed things to us. So when someone believes in Jesus, they are, by definition, elect. And if you're not yet a Christian, you are to believe in Jesus. It's your responsibility. You must choose to do so. And if you do believe in Jesus, then you know that you are called elect predestined. And then the amazing speechless truth is that all along God has known you, loved you, cared for you. He knew you. In your mother's womb, 
before the creation of the world. And is carrying you through every difficulty and trial, all for your good. It is quite extraordinary. And then there is uh, the word justified. Now again, we need to spend very little time on defining it because chapters 1 to 4 of Romans, Paul has already defined it for us. Um, But here you see is the place where human agency comes in, not with the foreknowledge word, but with the justified word. For Paul has taught in Romans 1 to 4 that to be righteous before God, we need to trust in Jesus. This is something that you have responsibility to do. Choose this day whom you will serve. There is a choice to be made. Uh, Perhaps you think of it all as slightly babyish and beneath you now that you have grown up. I, I was reminded this week of a story of a bishop meeting an astronomer on a train. Um, they were traveling together, and so they struck up a, a conversation. And the astronomer said to the, the bishop after a while, you know, frankly, sir, when I, when I think of Christianity, I just think of, you know, Jesus, meek and mild, you know. It's just babyish. I'm beyond all that stuff now. The bishop thought for a moment and looked at the astronomer and said, well, sir, when I think of astronomy, I just think of twinkle, twinkle, little star. If you are to judge ultimate truth by what you were taught as a child, it will inevitably seem childish. But surely, if any place, these magisterial words show you that the Jesus of the Bible cannot be dismissed as just for babies, but that he is Lord of all and presents you with a choice today as to whether to follow him and so be declared righteous or to reject him. Perhaps though the idea of being righteous or justified seems in itself pretty unattractive. And, and, and in some sense, fair enough. I mean, this word justification today or righteousness in the way we use it today pretty much means self-righteous. You know, if you're, if you're talking to someone at work and someone says, you know, he thinks he's very righteous, then what he's saying is he thinks he's self-righteous. He thinks he's righteous in the sense of he's self-righteous. It's a sort of harsh, pharisaic superiority. But actually, you see, that's not the right way to think about this justification or righteousness. Actually, every culture has its attempt to gain righteousness. Every culture, every generation. In Britain... Your status, that's really what we're talking about, your status. In Britain, it's based upon your class. So in Britain, you can be a lord, you know, lord so-and-so, but have absolutely no money whatsoever. I've met some such folk. But uh, you have the right accent, and you know how to behave, And you're still accepted as having the right background and being in the aristocracy. You're still Lord so-and-so. In America, it's much more about money. That's where you get your status. See, that's why many people have been scratching their head about this. But that's why a certain presidential candidate is almost untouchable at the moment. Whatever he says and does, 
because he has cultural status or righteousness of being a billionaire. There are about 40 billionaires in America, and if you're one of them, you've definitely got status. In some Asian communities, it's much more about academic achievement, you know, how are your grades. In Wheaton, it's about who you're related to. <laughs> how long you've lived here. If you're related to the right people, then you've got status. People often tell me how long they've lived here as a sort of status thing. You know, I've been here for 30 years. Okay. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't do that in New York City, I can tell you. It'll be much more about how much money you're making, not how long you've lived there. And at Harvard, it would be a fashion parade of the mind. You know, what do you mean you've only got one PhD? <sighs> what Paul is saying is here about justification throughout Romans is really none of those things give you the right status. They're all going to let you down. None of those things will justify you. True justification comes from identifying yourself with Jesus by trusting him and that and that alone frees you from all these other status symbols that are actually enslaving. Would you do that today? You see, it is for the newcomer, you know, the first timer here this morning who's just starting to understand what biblical Christianity is really all about. It's for you. But it's also for all of us here. We so easily begin to default to our cultural assumptions about what gives us real status. But yet it's not the rich man with the purple cloak and the gold ring on his finger who is righteous before God. Well, he can be. And many are. But it's not because of the gold ring. It's because of his faith in Christ. And the same for anyone of any color or race or academic achievement or class or family background. And the wonderful thing, and again, this, this, this just leaves me speechless, amazed. The wonderful thing about this is that it cannot be taken away from us. That's what Paul is saying. It is justified. It is done. Of course, money is a useful thing. I'm very grateful for people with uh, significant resources who allow, you know, college, church, Wheaton College, missionaries around the world. It's a useful thing. But money can go. Your reputation. Again, it's a good thing to have a good reputation, but one word from a gossip and it can be ruined. Family, it's a good thing to come from a good family. I'm grateful for my family, my forebears, my parents, my grandparents. Huge influence on my life. But family can let you down. Brain, it's a good thing to have a, a good brain, a high sort of horsepower kind of intellect. That's a good thing. But as, uh, as you age, it can become less impressive. 
your friends. Teenagers' righteousness is often very simply what their friends think about them. It's so hard, isn't it, to be a teenager? We can forget this easily as we get older. All this pressure to wear what someone else is wearing or think what your friends are thinking. But that's not reliable. It can be taken away from you. You can put on the wrong thing that morning. Like, what is he wearing and who are his friends? But if you have this status, this righteousness, then you're secure and free. And it's that wonderful. And again, it's amazing that this can be ours now. And forever. And so finally, we come as God leads us, as Wesley put it, step by step toward heaven, to the word glorified with which we started our consideration. It is a daring tense of a verb. So certain is our glorification. That is, that we will be finally conformed to the image of the Son. We will be like Jesus in character and also have a similar resurrection body raised with him from the dead. As he was the firstborn among many, uh, many brothers. And so also we will be raised and glorified with him for all eternity. Would you then ask yourself in response the questions that Paul asks himself? What then shall we say to these things? That is, would you ask yourself, is there anything else that could be said? God has the first word for knowing and the last word, glorified. What else is there to say? Paul has here, as it were, a theology of silence or speechless amazement. There is a place to simply sing back in amazement that God has not left any knot untied, any problem unscrambled or unsolved. It is all complete and finished. What then shall we say to these things? Would you also ask yourself, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, for God to be for us requires our response, it's responsibility, our response of personal trust in Jesus. And if you are therefore justified, God is for you. And then would you ask yourself, who can be against you? It is so securing to know that God is on your side. I've never played uh, basketball with Michael Jordan um, I don't know much about basketball, I'm afraid. I was uh, texting a friend yesterday about this March Madness stuff, and I texted him and said, does this happen every year? And he says, yes, it happens in March every year. It's like, oh, okay, good. Good to know. 
I've uh, never played basketball with Michael Jordan, but I imagine having Michael Jordan on your team was a bit of a confidence boost. What if God is for you? What does it really matter if that person said something nasty about you or you've had some setback at home or at work? It cannot ultimately defeat you because God is for you. Now, you may have enemies. Paul certainly had people who are against him in that sense. You may have enemies internal, how you think, negative self-talk, external from other people. But if God is for you, none of that counts for very much in the end. And finally, would you ask yourself, he who did not spare his uh, own son but gave him up for us all how will he not also with him graciously give us all things it's very easy isn't it in this life to feel that we have missed out on something Uh, perhaps we feel that we're not as clever as someone else or as athletic or as good-looking or we've not had the same opportunities in life. You know, someone else that we grew up with, you know, he had all the bricks. But would you then ask yourself, if God gave you his own son to die for you and rise again, as we remember this week, will he not also, perhaps not in our timing or according to our timetable, But finally in glory, give us all things so that all loss will be outweighed by the weight of glory. Let's pray together. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? For new glorified what then shall we say to these things our Lord we thank you that we are justified and glorified we thank you that we are complete in you. And we give you praise in the name of Jesus. Amen.